lot, friends. Let's go. Um, we are going to be doing something uh, this morning a little bit different than what we normally do. For those of you who have been around Flourishing Grace for a while, uh, for, for at least the past few months, you know exactly where, where we're going this morning. But, but for those of you who are new, let me explain a little bit we're, what we're going to be doing that's a little bit different. Um, we began this uh, a new initiative uh, back in September uh, called The Path of Flourishing. And really uh, what it was is just kind of a, an, an answer to the question, how do I have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? Uh, what does that actually look like? What does that actually take? And what we've created are these four pathways um, that we've been preaching on and talking about. The first one that we talked about was by beholding Jesus. We flourish by beholding Jesus. We fix our gaze on the source of all human flourishing. Jesus says, man, I am the true vine, right? And so we root our lives in that vine. We attach ourselves to the branch. We behold Jesus. We, we see him as he is, as beautiful. He becomes our greatest desire, our greatest affection, our greatest joy. And we root ourselves in him. We abide, as he says, abide in him. Abide in me. And I in you, whoever it is that abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so this flourishing is produced as we behold Jesus. Now then we moved on to the kind of the second pathway of by following Jesus, right? Following Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about for the past two weeks here at Flourishing Grace. And then we're going to get into becoming like Jesus and um, living in community with other people who are also walking in this path of flourishing. And so um, th that's what we are in. That's what we've been unpacking. And so, but the way that we've structured this is in each one of these pathways, we'll preach one sermon where we just kind of go super broad and just kind of define what, what do we mean when we say following Jesus? What do we mean when we say becoming like Jesus? What do we mean when we say um, beholding Jesus? But then we'll go super biblical and we'll go really deep and say, okay, what did Jesus actually say about this? What did, what did Jesus talk about when he talked about beholding me? What did Jesus talk about when he said following me? And then we go super, super practical. And that's where we are this morning. And so this morning is less of a sermon, like it's less of, men. we're going to open the Word and really unpack a text, which is what we normally do here at Flourishing Grace, kind of walking through a book of the Bible or really diving deep into a text and just saying, okay, let's just be real for a minute. Let's just have a conversation about, about what's really going on in your life and what's going on in my life. Um, and let's take everything that we've worked on over the past two weeks and bring them into 2019 and just say, okay, how does this really play out? And so the past couple weeks, we haven't had very much application at all, and we're just going to kind of dump it all into one Sunday. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. I, I, the reason why I say this, because if that's all we ever did, it wouldn't be very healthy. Um, we need to open the Bible together. Um, but in this, in this initiative, four times this fall, we're going to do what we're going to do this morning. All right? So we are in this pathway um, called, uh, the pathway is by following Jesus. We flourish by following Jesus. And, and as we've been walking through this, so in these kind of practical Sundays, if you, if you were here for when we did the practical Sunday on by beholding Jesus, we, we walk into, we say, okay, what are the spiritual disciplines uh, that help us in this pathway? What are the spiritual disciplines that help us behold Jesus? What are the spiritual disciplines that help us follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar with spiritual disciplines, right, they've been called different things, maybe spiritual practices, or the old re reformers, they called them the means of grace, right, the means of grace. And it's important to realize that there's nothing that you can do that's going to actually earn you more grace, okay? Um, you, you can't 
do more in order to gain more from God. God has already given you everything that he's going to give you in, in, the, in the death and resurrection of a son. Like, that is plenty. You, you don't need any more grace than that. Where, where sin abounds in your life, grace abounds all the more. You have more grace in your life than you can possibly begin to imagine if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, uh, what the means of grace or these spiritual disciplines are, it's like a kid on Christmas morning, Right? who has been in his mind for the entire year just, just dreaming about this particular toy, this thing, this is what he wants. It's all he's wanted all year long. He's been talking about it and talking about it, and mom's like, just wait till Christmas. We'll see if Santa brings it. We'll see what happens. We'll see. All right, all year long. And he's like, I can't wait for Christmas. And he comes downstairs Christmas morning. He flies into the room. He sees the box. He knows what's in the box. He's studied the shape. He's studied the size. He's like measured it in his mind a thousand times at the store. He sees, he rips into it, and there it is, like the thing that he wanted. He puts his hands in his pockets. He's like, that's awesome. And he just stands there and stares at the box. That's a life of faith without discipline. That's, 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 that's the kind of this cognitive belief in Jesus without any real spiritual practice in your life. Like the gift was given. Can, can he receive any more of the gift? No. No, it's, it's his. There it is. But can he experience it more? Yeah. But he has to do something, right? He has to open the box, get the thing out. He has to play with it, learn how it works, experience it. To actually fully enjoy the depths of the gift, the child must engage with the gift. And, and so you can't receive any more grace, but you can actually engage with it. You can experience more of it. It's already yours. It's already been given by Christ uh, in, in the gospel. His death and resurrection, he has given you all of the grace and all of the, the joy and the delights, all there. But through the disciplines, we actually experience it. And so what are the disciplines that help us to follow Jesus? Well, uh, let's, let's real quick go back. Last Sunday, uh, we unpacked, right, the, the mark, the defining mark of a follower of Jesus from John 8, 31, right? What, what is the defining mark of a follower of Jesus? If, if you abide in my what? My word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Yeah, nice work, guys. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Like, so the defining mark of a follower of Jesus is one who takes the areas of their lives and they root it in the teachings of Jesus. So every area of my life is taken and it's rooted in the teachings of Jesus. And so no, so no longer is it my thoughts and my opinion in my way, how I think it should be. No, it's the teaching of Jesus that dictates this area of my life and this area of my life and this area of my life. And so following Jesus is this constant uprooting areas of our life and rerooting them in the teachings of Jesus. And once that's rooted there and it's abiding there, then we move on to the next area. And it's just a Again and again and again for all of our days, we are rooting areas of our life or abiding areas of our life in the, the word of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Now, here's the problem. When you talk about spiritual disciplines and this idea of abiding, uh, we run into a problem, okay? 
Um, and it's a problem with pastors um, because pastors love things that rhyme. Do you know that? Man, we love to make things rhyme. Because like if it rhymes, it preaches, all right? Um, and so here, here's something that's said often by, by preachers, okay? Um, don't strive, just abide. Mmm, that sounds good. It rhymes, it must be true. Like if it rhymes, it must be true. Uh, don't strive, just abide. The problem is, it's not true. Like it's, it's not true. I've, I've heard so many preachers say that uh, over the years. It's just kind of like, it, it's, a, it's a good, like, it sounds right, but it's not right. Because here's why it's not right. The opposite of abiding is not striving. Think about it. If you just, if you just think about it for a second, okay? That, that Greek word for abide is the Greek word minnow, which means to remain, to, to stay. Your, your, your Bible might even say to stay or, or to continue in, um, to um, hold to. Your Bible might say to hold to the teachings of Jesus, um, to hold to his word, right? So to, to remain, to stay, to be rooted in, to abide, right? So what is the opposite of to stay? To leave, to go. What's the opposite of to remain? Same thing, yeah. It's not, it's not to strive, right? It's not to fight or to strain or to strive. It's to leave, to depart from, to, to move on, right? Um, so the opposite of, uh, of abiding is actually like leaving, right? Or, or as some translations say, to continue in. What's the, what's the, what's the definition of continue in? To stop. Right? So, so when we say, hey, don't, don't strive, just abide, like, no, 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 the opposite of abiding is, is to stop doing something, not to start doing something, right? So it's, it doesn't make any sense. And then if you take it all and you put it um, in Scripture, right, we see, like, n- nobody in, in all the New Testament teaches to just do nothing. Like, that, you're, that to follow Jesus is just to, like, not do anything. Like, that's not, in fact, look at, look at the words of Paul in, in Philippians 1.27, and next time you hear pastors say, don't strive, just abide, just read them this. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, what? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, man, we are to be one community, a family of people. The church is to exist as a family of people that are striving, striving to to live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. We're to be people who are striving. A few uh, chapters later in chapter 3, he says, man, uh, forgetting what this is one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm straining. My, my faith journey is described by straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm moving on. I'm rooted in the Word. I'm straining forward to the next thing in my life that I need to uproot and reroot. I'm just constantly working. Right when he says, talk to Timothy, right? He says, Timothy, train yourself in godliness. There's a work you must be doing in your life, Timothy, to train yourself in godliness. There is a work that we must be doing in our life not to access grace, not not to receive more grace from God, 
but you enjoy the fullness of the grace that he's already given. And, and this, is, this is the disciplines. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about I mean, how, how these disciplines help us to follow Jesus, help us to root our lives, right, root every area of our lives in his teaching. How do the disciplines help us root every area of our lives in his teaching? Well, the first thing that we must ask is, what is not allowing us? What's impeding us from rooting the areas of our lives in his teaching? What, what is impeding us from abiding in his word? I'm going to argue there's two primary things. Two primary things. We take what we talked about last week and the week before, and we bring it into 2019. There are two primary things that are robbing us of a flourishing relationship with Jesus because they're robbing us of the ability to root our lives in his word, okay? Hurry and distraction. Now, you might think, that's the same thing. It's not the same thing, I promise. Hurry and distraction are, are robbing us of a flourishing relationship with Jesus because they're, they're, they're impeding us from actually opening the box and, and removing the gift and following Jesus. They're impeding us from rooting our lives in his word. So let's talk about them briefly. Hurry, okay? When you run into somebody at the store that you haven't seen in a while, maybe even here at church, maybe there's somebody who hasn't been in a while, they've been on vacation, they come back, um, and you're like, man, how's it going? Like, what's happening? What's new, right? Here's their response. Oh, man, life, it's just everything's so good. The kids are doing so well. We're just so, what's the word? Oh, my goodness. Y'all know. Funny, how do you know that? It's your response, too. What's funny about it is it doesn't matter if things are really, really going well or if things are really, really bad. It's still the same response. Oh, my gosh, everything's so good. I mean, the kids are in sports, and they're, just, they're doing so amazing in school. They're just keeping us really busy. Man, things aren't going very well. I, uh, man, just work is just crushing me. We're just moving at 100 miles an hour, and, and we've been having some health problems. Man, and life's just really busy. Friends, you need to realize something before we move on any farther, okay? In 2019, the defining mark of your life is not rooted in the word of Jesus. The defining mark of your life is busy. Like the thing that defines our existence is busy. Like that's not okay. It's just not okay. And that, that busyness, that hurry is robbing us of a, of a relationship with Jesus. Here's the reality. Like we are living in like this urgent realm where everything is urgent. Everything, we are, our, our lives are so full, which is another word for busy, okay? Um, everything is urgent. Everything has to happen now. Um, uh, we have so many commitments. Our calendars are so full. We have so many obligations. And so we live in this urgent, I have to now, Johnny has to be at football practice. And now Susie has to be at soccer. And now I got to go meet up with my friends. And now I got to get this project done. And now it's like everything has to happen now. And if, if, and if something doesn't happen now, then it's like, oh my gosh, it's even more urgent. And so we just run and we run and we run in, in, this, in this box of urgent and over here is all of the important things. There's like a pile of important things that just keep getting put it off. The pile in your life is growing and growing. And some of you are like breaking out in hives right now because you're like, stop talking about me. 
because you're thinking about like the things, like there's like yard work, it's like fall, there's things you got to do, um, there's things at the office that like are just piling up because you've been living here so unbelievably much. And this, this pile is growing and growing. For, for some of you, it's like you're drowning in it. It's like the closet that's, you open the door, it's going to all just fall over. Somewhere in the bottom of that pile of important is a thing called a, a relationship with Jesus. Like, we've, we've buried our relationship with Jesus in the other important things of our life. And, and here's the thing. Even if you could, even if you could eliminate the urgent, how long would it take you to get through all this important stuff before you actually got to what the most important thing in your life is? Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Dallas Willard was an was a American kind of theologian philosopher. He says, the greatest enemy of, of, our, of our spiritual life today, the greatest enemy of your flourishing relationship with Jesus is hurry. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Life. How many of you in the room are ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life? Like that is your daily goal to just eliminate hurry from your life. My, my guess is none of us. None of us. I, I would argue that you can't have a flourishing relationship with Jesus if the defining word of your existence is busy or hurried or full. Um, I listened to a sermon this summer. I listen to sermons pretty regularly from, from different guys, guys that I love and respect, friends of mine. Um, and occasionally, I'll listen to something that's totally new. And this summer, uh, my wife Desiree and I, we were driving back from, from Jackson, Wyoming. We had a little vacation, um, which was actually the least hurried thing ever. It was like when the, the fire was happening, right? Some people lost their homes. Some people in this room almost lost their homes. And we're, we're, we're like in, in the woods. And all of a sudden, we're getting like text messages somehow. And... Um, it's kind of nice. It's like, can't do anything about it. So let's go, let's go rent a canoe. Um, it was actually pretty nice to not be busied and hurried. That's why we, we love Jackson. Anyways, we're coming back from Jackson, and I listened to a sermon by a guy. He's a, he's got a, he's a pastor in Portland. His name is John Mark Comer. And, and the title of the sermon was actually based on that Dallas Willard quote, um, Hurry, the Great Enemy of the Spiritual Life. And um, honestly, it was one of those sermons where I don't, I don't hear these sermons very often, but every once in a while, it's like, oh my gosh, like that, that's it, man. Uh, we, Flourishing Grace needs to hear that. Like, and so if you, if you want that, I'll, just, I'll send it to you. Um, but I, I want to read to you. He, in the sermon, he reads from uh, Matthew 28, Sorry, Matthew eleven twenty eight, and he, he reads this from Jesus. Jesus says this. It'll be up here on the screen, I think. Yes, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I said a minute ago that if 
hurried, busy, and full is the mark of your life. You can't have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. It doesn't work. And Jesus right here is saying this. Like, listen, like, to, to live, to root, to abide your life in my teaching, right, means that you have this light yoke, that you have rest, like rest defined your life, right? Lightness defined your life. That's not true for so many of us. For, for most of us in this room, heaviness and weariness defines our life. So you can't have both. So how does it work? This is the part of the sermon that blew my mind. He read this. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote from a commentary by Frederick Dale uh, Bruner, uh, Bruner. And he says this in his commentary on Matthew eleven twenty eight: A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation. Amen. Not a yoke. Not a yoke. I don't need a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. That was the line. I was like, oh my God. Gosh, like that's it. He realizes the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. That's, that's real, that's true. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, which we're memorizing together in our small groups, obedience to that yoke will develop us in a balance, in a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Friends, the, the offer of Jesus to root our lives in his word it is an offer to help you carry life. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives so that as we root our lives in his word, we can experience this rest and we can experience this lightness. But the reality is I think we come to this and we're, we're, we're so over here, there's so many commitments, there's so many things going on. When we hear man, that we must do in order to experience, we're like, I can't do more. I can't, so I just gotta put that off for a minute because this urgent stuff has to happen and it gets buried deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But Jesus isn't calling you to just do more. He's calling you to experience the fullness of flourishing in your life. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Now, I'm gonna come back to how we do that, but real quick, I wanna talk about distraction, okay? Um, the reality is I would argue that there's never been a time when we've been more distracted than we are right now. In 2019, we are just an insanely distracted uh, people, right? And, and the reality is, is that rooting every area of our life in the word of Jesus must happen first in our minds. 
okay? It's, it's, it is, there's a physical actions that are involved in this, right? There, there are things you must do, things you must obey, conversations you must have in order to root every area of your life into the teaching of Jesus. But it must happen first in our minds. We must study it and think about it and realize what we must do. It's a discipline of the mind to be, to be rooted in the word of Christ, not be transformed by the world, but be, but have our, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, We must root our minds in the word of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12, 2. Um, I I want to do this. I want to read a quote. And I'm not going to tell you who who said it. um, But I want you to guess what he's talking about. Here's what he says, a hamster wheel of what will never satisfy our souls. We are always busy, but always distracted, diabolically lured away from what is truly essential and truly gratifying. Led by our unchecked digital appetites, we manage to transgress both commands that promise to bring focus to our lives. We fail to enjoy God. We fail to love our neighbor. Any guesses? What's that? Binger? Yeah, he's talking about Binger. Binger is the lure that diabolically lures us away. No, that's not right. That's not right. I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. There was, a, there was an event that occurred in 2007 that changed the course of the world forever. The world will never be the same because of what happened in 2007. It was one of the most amazing things and one of the most tragic things all at the same time. There we go. The release of the iPhone. What is the lure that diabolically lures us away? It's our phones. He's talking about our phones. We live digitally unchecked lives, and and therefore we are diabolically lured away from what is truly gratifying and truly meaningful. We never get to experience the fullness of flourishing because we're diabolically lured away. Some of you are like, I don't don't know about that. Let Let me give you some stats real quick. The typical cell phone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times every day. Typical cell phone user touches their phone 2,670 times every day, according to a study by the research firm Discount. But that's just the average user, okay? That's just the average user. Okay, so the top 10% of users, which are those who, um, who use their phones as their primary means of email, their primary source of communication, texting, phone call, email, their primary source of social media accounts like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and the primary source of their entertainment, whether that's Netflix or YouTube or games, whatever, right? Which I just described most of us in the room. The primary source, the top 10%, touch their phones over 5,400 times every single day. Just 5,400 times every single day. The survey also found that the total time spent interacting with a phone for the average user was about 145 minutes, so two and a half hours every single day. Every day. That's just average. The top 20%, 
Top 20% of smartphone users spend more than 4.5 hours a day, more than 4.5 hours a day on their phone. That, that is half of your workday is spent on your device. Like, think about just the amount, that's an insane amount of time. What did we do before 2007? You know what we did? We were bored. <laughs> Nobody's bored anymore. Like, kids these days don't know what boredom is. They have no idea. Most people can't go longer than one hour and 43 minutes without touching their phones during the day, right? They begin to break out in hives and sweats and they don't know what's happening, right? Um, 60% of people reported experiencing occasional stress uh, when their phone is off or out of reach. And I know you know that feeling. Like you get to the store, you like get out of your car, or you're going out to dinner, you get out of the car, and you're saying, what am I doing? I left my phone at home, and all of a sudden it's like panic attack is setting in. What am I going to do without it? Research has directly linked stress levels to the frequency we check our phones. If we, if we have our notifications turned on and we check our email frequently throughout the day, we are way more likely to be stressed out than if we simply turn off notifications and check email three to four times a day. If you just like turn off the notifications, like if, if every time you get an email or a Facebook post or uh, a news thing, it doesn't like ding or beep or pop up on your screen, you're way more likely to be less stressed out. Some of you are like, I need to change this right now. How do I change my notifications again? Ask your kids. Um, here's, here's, here's the thing. The, the reality is, is that this is just a lure right? This is actually pretty harmless. It's plastic and maybe aluminum and glass, depending on who makes your phone. It's just a lure, right? Any of you guys fish? Any people fish, right? Like, if the fish isn't hungry, the lure is harmless to the fish. If the fish has no desire for that lure, that color, the shape, the texture, the sound, it's harmless to him. So it's actually what the question we must ask is what is the desire that makes this so desirable? And I'm going to make the case it's the desire for distraction. It's, it's the desire to be diverted from what's actually happening in our lives. Um, and this is something that's been in, in us for so unbelievably long, right? Blase Pascal was the French mathematician, philosopher, theologian in the 1500s. And Pascal, one of his most famous quotes from the Pancice Pascal, he says, all of humanity's problems, think about that. What are some of humanity's problems? Greed, a world hunger, sex trafficking, war. All of humanity's problems, all of them, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Homeboy wrote that in the 1500s, by the way. Like in the Pansy Say Pascal, if you've ever read it, like his, his idea of like diversion and distraction is like rabbit hunting. He's like, we chase the hare in order to divert our minds from, like, the things that actually matter. Like, now it's just like we just, like, open our, we just pull out the thing in our pockets. Like, it's so easy to be distracted now. The lure is right in front of us in all of the world's problems. Like, it's like, I wonder why the world is getting worse than it was in the 1500s. Like, 
all of the world's problems. We cannot sit quietly alone in a room. Like, when was the last time you had to wait? Like, you go to the doctor's office, and they're like, oh, I have a seat. Or you go to get a haircut or whatever, and they're like, hey, have a seat. And you didn't pull out your phone. You're like, that's a thing? It's a thing. You can actually not do that. In fact, yesterday I got a haircut. And I sat down uh, I was to wait, and I instantly pulled out my phone. I was like, oh, you're preaching on this tomorrow. Put that away. <laughs> and I, l- I look around. Every single person waiting is on their phone. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, we can't sit quietly in a room by ourselves. Like, we can't sit quietly for two seconds. Like, we must divert our minds, and it's never been more easy than it is right now. And I'm not saying that cell phones are horrible. I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm saying that there's something in us that desires to not think about what's actually happening in our lives. There's something in us that desires to not actually engage in in God's word. There's something in us that desires to not actually root our lives in his, in his way, in his teaching. And, and, and if we can be so easily distracted, man, it, it's just too easy to not do that. And Satan's good at his job, man. Like, he's never had it more easy. Like, the, the, the invention of the iPhone, Satan was like, jackpot. Like, this is, this is just easy now. Um, let me give you one example. If you, if you study the word, what you'll see is throughout, throughout all time, God has used something to, to gain the attention of his people. When his people are trying to distract themselves and they're like, I don't want to listen, I don't want to listen, I don't want to listen. God has used something again and again and again and again and again. Anybody know what it is? What his strategy is to get our attention? Say it louder. Pain. Pain. He'll create pain in our lives to call us back to himself. Right? The author of Hebrews says that he... Um, he disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastises those whom he receives. And that word chastises in the Greek is not a nice word. It's, it's bad. Like he chastises those whom he receives. He creates pain in our lives, longing, sorrow, remorse in our lives so that we might turn back to him and recall our minds to the fact that he is the one that we need more than we need anything else in this world. C.S. Lewis uh, said it this way. He said, God is always speaking to us, but normally we aren't aware. We aren't listening. Accordingly, pain is God's microphone to a deaf world. Here's, let me just, here's the question. When you experience pain in your life now, and I'm not talking about like physical pain. I'm not talking about like you broke your arm pain. I'm talking about someone close to you died. Uh, you broke up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Relationally, you got in an argument with a, with a good friend. You, you lost your job. You experiencing, you're experiencing pain. Where do we numb that pain? Yeah. Distraction. Just, just binge watching YouTube, flipping through social media for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. I just don't want to have to think about it. And so now Satan has offered us an alternative, something that we can turn to other than God in the midst of our pain so that we just can just numb the effects of it rather than actually addressing it or dealing with it. He's taken away God's microphone. Like we, we must take this more 
seriously. Um, Tony Ranke, so that quote earlier that I read earlier, uh, that's from Tony Ranke, 12 ways your phone is changing you. If you have not read that, you're missing out. Um, he says this in that same work. He says, and if our digital technology becomes our God, our wand of power, it will inevitably shape us into technicians who gain mastery over a dead world of conveniences. Yes, it's amazing. Like you could, you could buy anything it with like a few clicks from the thing in your pocket. It's amazing. Aimlessly flicking through feeds and images for hours, we feel that we are in control of our devices when we are really puppets being controlled by a lucrative industry. Here's the reality, okay? Digital marketing is studying you. Not the people around you, not, not me, you, okay? The, yeah, they're studying me too, but they're studying you. They study what you click on, when you click on it. They study when you look at your phone, when you don't look at your phone, or when you are most emotionally susceptible to their ad. When are you going to click on this thing? They're studying your emotions, not, not just your habits, the emotions. What are you clicking on? When, when are you clicking on it? And when are you most emotionally susceptible to clicking on their thing? And that's when it pops up. That's when they show you. That's when they get you. It's amazing. Like they, they, are, they are studying. Like you, you realize this. And then we're like, hey, hey, kid, just, I just need a minute. Here, take that. Hey, hey, I, listen, I just want to finish dinner. Here, look at that. You got you to realize that if you have no digital plan in your life, I would say in, in our day, right now, if you have no digital plan and no digital discipline in your life, there is no hope for you to have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. No hope. You cannot follow Jesus without digital discipline. You can't. And so here's what I want to do. I want, I want to move from distraction and from hurry to, 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 to an ancient discipline that I believe will help us in this, okay? It's the ancient discipline of silence and solitude. Now, some of you in the room are like, wait, What? Uh, like vows of silence, like what are you going to tell us to do, Josh? Uh, vows of silence actually are, are not what you think, but that's not what I'm going to tell you to do either. Um, vows of silence, like we think of like these crazy monks that are like, I'm not talking for a year. Uh, that actually didn't really happen. I mean, there's a few, like St. Ignatius, history says that he took like a year-long vow of silence, but that wasn't like a real thing that, that monks did. A vow of silence was like from like 9 a.m. to like noon, I'm not going to talk. I'm gonna, we're just going to be silent together in our in our monastery, we're just going to be silent. Like it was like short spurts during the day, or a few hours during the day. It wasn't. It wasn't like an all day or all month thing. Um, and so the question is: silence is all, all. Simply, all it is is removing hurry and distraction from our lives for a temporary period of time. Right. So removing hurry and distraction means removing sound and removing people from our lives. A.W. Tozer uh, said it this way: He says, "If a man wants to be used by God." He can't spend all of his time with people, right? If you want to be used by God, you can't spend all your time with people. And so we need silence and solitude in our lives. And the reality is, is that we just, just are constantly being bar bombarded and being robbed of silence and solitude, right? If it was hard for Pascal in the 1500s, like what hope do you and I have? Here's the case I'd make. I think it's actually easier today than it was then. Because a little bit goes a very, very long way. And so it's actually easier to kind of chip away at this 
um, today than it was for Pascal. Like Pascal had to like lock himself in a room alone. Uh, you just have to turn off your phone, which some of you just like broke out in the sweat right there. You're like, turn it off, I know, turn it off. Um, I'm gonna give you three things, th- three quick ways to practice the discipline of silence, silence and solitude uh, in your life. The first one is this, what, what if, what if rather than sleeping next to your phone, okay, so first thing in the morning, you turn on your phone, um, and you are rooting your life in the world rather than the word. I mean, how, how many of us sleep next to our phones? You, you can be honest, I do, okay, okay, all of us, okay, sweet. It's my alarm clock. Guess what? They're like $5 on Amazon. Like, use your phone to get yourself an alarm clock. <laughs> Problem solved. Um, when we wake up in the morning, we, we check our phones, and the marketing companies know it, man. It's when you're most susceptible. And so that, that news feed's going to pop up, that Facebook thing's going to pop up, that Instagram thing's going to pop up, and we're just going to get caught, and we're going to lay in bed for a while, just kind of slowly waking up, rooting our lives in the world rather than in the word. What if simply changing just one small habit in our life could actually bring some silence and solitude to our life? Like, what if when you walked into your home, you took your phone, and you plugged it in next to your front door, and you walked away? If it rings, you'll still hear it. Right? Somebody's trying to get a hold of you. No, no panic. It's fine. Like, listen, it's fine. But you don't carry it around with you in your house. You go old school. It's almost like a landline. You guys remember that? Kids, ask your parents. Um, and, and even better yet, you could turn it off and get a landline. They're, they're so out of style, they're like cheap now. Like you can get that. It's like you can tack that onto your bill for like a dollar a month. It's like amazing. Nobody wants them anymore. Um, just turn it off. Like, what if when you got in your car, after you, in, to, if when you're leaving work, you just turned off your phone, you didn't turn it on until you got to work the next day? How much silence would it bring to your life? How much solitude would it bring to your life? And I'm telling you right now, your stress level would dramatically decrease. And if you, and if you actually chose to use that time wisely and reroute it in the word of Christ, your relationship with Jesus would begin to flourish in a way that it hasn't since 2007. And if you didn't have a landline, guess what? It would be okay. Remember the 80s? Like somebody called and nobody was home or you couldn't get to the phone? They just called back. There's no answering machine. There's no, there's no, like it's just like, or they would come to your house and knock on the door and actually have a conversation. <laughs> I remember, remember that? Amazing. It's like, how did we live? How did we do that? And so what, what, what if just changing a few digital habits could bring a vast amount of silence and solitude back into our lives? So much has been taken out in the past decade that a few little practices could bring so much back in. Now, some of you maybe are already digitally disciplined. You're already thinking through these things. And so what's kind of the next step? I'm going to give you two more real quick. First, I think you should do this either way, right? Take your calendar. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. So sit down with your spouse. Sit down with your, maybe, maybe, a, maybe if you're single, maybe a friend who can actually kind of poke at you a little bit. Take your calendar for the next month, so the next 30 days of your life, and list it out, okay? And not, not just like, here's what's going on. No, list it out in the order of what's most important. Not most urgent, but what's the most important thing. It's like, I can't miss my best friend's wedding. Okay, that's, that's important. That can be towards the top. And then it's like, down here is like, 
working out or something. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, whatever's at the bottom, just like in, in the list of most important to the least important with your spouse, with a friend, right? And you look at it. What are the things on that list that you could easily, maybe painfully, but easily eliminate that would bring so much more relief to your life, that would dramatically reduce the level of urgency in your life? My, my guess is they're all in the middle. They're not the most important things, and they're probably not even the least important things. They're like those things in the middle that we think are important, but they're not really that important. And we could easily eliminate them and bring so much more silence and so much more solitude in our life. You must, listen, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must. It is the enemy, the greatest enemy of our spiritual lives today in 2019. This is an easy discipline. There's a few times a year, list it out, look at it, and begin to eliminate the things that are bringing hurry, urgency, fullness to your life. And then the last one is this, and we'll be done. Um, what would it look like for you on a, on a regular basis to schedule a time of actual silence and solitude? Like silence. Alone. Like you find a place where there's just no one else. And, and that could be someplace cool, like maybe you go to an old church downtown and you just sit for a few hours. Maybe you go up in the mountains and you just hike for a few hours. Uh, maybe you get the kids out of the house and you, just, and you just stay home for a few hours. Just sit in a chair and drink a cup of coffee. And there's no, there's no radio, there's, there's no music playing, it's just silence. Some of you are like, I can't do that, I got kids, and I can't... You know, Listen, if you're in a small group, if you're not in a small group, I can't help you. But if you're in a small group, listen, the people in your group, you should be in a small group. The people in your group will, will take your kids. If you say, hey, I want to practice silence and solitude for a few hours. Would you watch my kids for like four hours on a Saturday? They're going to say yes. If they say no, let me know. I'll take care of that for you. Like that would be ridiculous. Of course they're going to say yes. And then, then next week maybe, maybe you can watch theirs or, or whatever. Like just like four hours of just stillness once a month maybe once a year you actually retreat you actually find maybe you and your spouse or you and some friends like airbnb a cabin in the woods and you just silence here's the thing like these things are so foreign to our world like your friends and your family are not going to do this they're not going to get this they're not going to understand. You're like, wait, why wasn't your phone on? Like, there's something wrong with you. Like, you turned your phone off? I'm trying to get a hold of you here. Like, they, weren't, they don't remember the 80s, okay? Um, it's not going to make sense to people in your life. But there is a God who loves you and is trying to break through the busyness and the hurried and the distractions of your life and man, Satan is using everything he can to, to pull you into more busyness, to pull you into more hurried, to pull you into more distractions. You must ruthlessly work at this. If you actually want to experience the fullness of flourishing, you want to experience what is light and what is restful, you want to experience nearness to Jesus, we must be a people who strive for that, strive to abide. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, we come before you this morning and, and yeah, just resting in this moment of just practical, practical life stuff. I pray that this would not be a common theme for us here at Flourishing Grace. I pray that we would be a people who are passionate about your word, always wanting to dig in more and unpack more and see more. But I also pray that we'd be a people who are disciplined, people who know that in order to follow after you, it's going to require, it's going to require work in our lives, not to receive more from you, but to experience all that has already been given. We must be a people who strive to follow, straining forward to what lies ahead. Would you give us people in our lives that hold us accountable, people in our lives that keep us disciplined? And might we make a commitment to ourselves, to our spouses, to our friends, to our small group, to follow you. And maybe today's the day, maybe today's the, like the, the marker in our lives where we say, man, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to live like the rest of the world anymore. I'm not going to live like the world tells me I'm supposed to live. I'm going to live the way that Jesus told me I'm supposed to live. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, it's light. Help us to carry the weight of life. Give us the tools we need as we follow after you. I pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.